Good evening again. Welcome back. Uh, it really is good to see you. Um, I hope you had a great spring break. Uh, I certainly did. I uh, got to go to Atlantic City with Sarah Jane and Kira and, and Maddie. Uh, we were joined by an RUF group from UNCW. We ended up having a really great time. Uh, I've never been to Atlantic City, and to be honest with you, uh, I wasn't too thrilled to go at first, if I'm being totally honest. I had heard some not-so-great things about the city, and sure enough, the day that we drove in, there was this weird sort of post-apocalyptic dystopian fog that was hovering over the city. You could see sort of the casinos rising out of the fog. It looked really ominous. So we sort of drove in past these wetlands that were all polluted with trash. There was these billboards that were advertising sort of addiction help and suicide prevention. There was one sort of commemorating a guy who had just died. It was sad. It was really sort of depressing, and it was even a little bit scary. And that first Sunday, I caught myself thinking, I don't want to be here. Well, a couple of days later, as we were making the same drive into the city, I was reminded of something that Fred Rogers said, sort of Mr. Rogers, in a now famous interview. He says how his mother used to say that whenever he saw a catastrophe on television or saw something scary on the news, any time that he felt scared, that he was to always look for the helpers. She said to him, if you look for the helpers, you will know that there's hope. And for a week, that is what we did. We looked for the helpers. We found them. We partnered with them. It was a church, a a bunch of humble, Jesus-inspired people who are moving towards suffering, moving towards people who are living in the projects and who are stuck working in a casino or are trying to break the cycle of poverty. Being around them reminded me of why I wanted to be a Christian in the first place. I was reminded of the people that I met in Africa 16 years ago who were moving into a war zone to take care of refugees and orphans and child soldiers. I remember asking them at the time, like, why are you here? You could be safe and sound in Kampala. Why are you moving your family into a war zone? And to a person, they would tell me a story. They told me the story of how God left his comfort zone and he entered into suffering to take it on, to end it once and for all. Because he had moved towards suffering... They were following suit and moving towards others. Because he brought them hope, they were following suit and bringing hope to others. If you've ever heard me tell my story, I, I tell you, like these were people who were full of courage and compassion. Their lives felt full, mine felt thin. I can say the same thing about the Christians that we met in Atlantic City. About Santo and Mary Ellen, about Pete and Katie, Allison, Raph, Titus, and more. And being in their company reminded me of why I wanted to be a Christian in the first place. And I think that is a great launching point for part four of our series, Roots and Relationships. Our entire series has has been building up to this point, uh, in fact. In the story that was just read, the story that Jesus tells, the story of the sower, or you could think of it as the story of four soils. We're told a story about a sower who goes out to sow. Three times the seed that he sows fails to produce fruit which is ultimately what the sower wants. The first time it fails, it fails because it bounces off the path. Seed, Jesus later identifies as the word of God, it doesn't get inside. The second time it fails is because it doesn't put down deep roots. Pictured for us here is a shallow superficial faith. It sort of withers under pressure and heat. The third time the seed fails is because it is strangled by weeds. 
pictured for us here as a person trying to keep the faith in isolation. Right? Someone who's sort of trying to live the Christian life but has this posture of keep your hands off of me. I want to do this by myself. But then we come to this good soil. And what makes it so good? Well, it's not stated, but it's simply assumed that it's just, it's not like the other three that preceded it. Unlike the path, this is someone who's practicing rest and is receptive to God's word. Unlike the shallow soil, this is a person who is rooted. He or she has a hidden support system. He or she knows how to connect with Jesus in prayer. And unlike the one that is sort of stuck in the thorns, this is someone instead who is surrounded by others and is following Jesus in community. Uh, is surrounded by people who can sort of weed the, the garden, cultivate their growth. If this is you, if you are the good soil, fruit is inevitable. It's almost automatic. There's nothing you can do to stop it. It's just going to flow. The fruit that you will bear is not just a sign of the life or vitality within you. It is for the enjoyment and the enrichment of others. I'll say it again. If God's word is inside of you and you are resting, rooted, and joined to his church, people will not just see your fruit. They will taste of it too. Now maybe this is obvious, but it's still worth saying that the fruit of a Jesus-shaped life will have a distinct Jesus flavor. When when discussing the difference between a true follower of Jesus and a false follower of Jesus, Jesus says you will recognize them by their fruits. You can't get grapes from thorn bushes, he says. Or similarly, you can't pick an orange from an apple tree. All that is to say, a person who is rooted in Jesus will naturally yield a Jesus type of fruit in their life. You following? This fruit will be, and it ought to be, distinctly Christian. These differences will not just be seen, but they'll be felt in the ways that you love other people, the ways that you treat yourself, the ways that you work and the ways that you rest, the ways that you spend your money, the ways you use your body, the way you handle suffering, the way you handle conflict, and on and on. As a friend of mine told me, you never look at a tree and think that it's lazy, and you never look at a tree and think that it's busy either. A tree does all this work, it produces fruit, but it's not trying to like manifest fruit or like really straining hard to bear fruit, right? It just is doing what trees do. It's drawing in water, it's drawing in minerals, it's breathing, and fruit follows. This is sort of the secret, right, to bearing fruit. It's you taking in the word and resting in Jesus and drawing in his life. You do that, fruit will follow. But trying to get the life, trying to get the fruit of a Christian life without having these roots, or trying to get like a Jesus-shaped life without Jesus, it's sort of like trying to staple fruit to a tree, It'll look good for a minute, but it's going to rot there on the branches because it's not organic. It's not sustainable. It's not going to really work. It'll rot and it'll die. The way to get the fruit of the Spirit and the life of Jesus is by getting his word inside of you. 
It's by having that hidden support system. It's by joining that church. Now, for the next six, seven weeks, I want to flush out, with help from Sarah Jane and others, we want to flush out what this good fruit, this good life is going to look like and feel like. How it plays out in the ways that we relate to our identity, work, rest, finances, sexuality, body, and so on. Okay, this is where we're going to go these next seven weeks. How we're going to land this plane this year. But tonight, I want to kick things off by talking about the fruit of the Christian, uh, particularly as it relates to our identity. And we're going to use these words from the Apostle Paul as sort of a guide. Okay? Many books have been written about our, cult- uh, our, our culture's obsession with ourselves. We are living in the age of the profile page and the selfie stick and the personality quiz. According to church creeds and catechisms, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But that is a very different answer from what our culture would give. From a cultural perspective, the chief end of man is to know thyself and to express thyself. Codified in a whole bunch of slogans like be true to yourself, follow your heart, and you do you. In an age of authenticity, the whole point of existence is finding your deepest self and then expressing that to the world. Forging an identity that counters whatever family, friends, politicians, or previous generations might say. This is pretty much the plot line of virtually any Disney animated film that's been made in like the past 30 years. Or the lyrics to any song that's ever been written by Lady Gaga. The technical term for this posture or philosophy is expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is the view that the chief end of man is to be authentic. That for individuals to be authentic, they must align their lives with their deepest desires. And that for societies to be authentic, they must applaud individuals for aligning life with their deepest desires. Anything less than that is oppressive. It's important for you to know that we didn't always think this way. And this is a relatively new phenomenon, a relatively new way of sort of thinking about identity. Like prior to the Enlightenment, the fundamental assumption was that humans shared a common nature and that the individual search for fulfillment, sort of like the way to find the good life, was focused on comprehending and then living in accordance with your nature. But from the time of Descartes, he's the guy who's like, I think, therefore I am, the search for self-understanding became a more individualistic quest. An author, Pastor Dale Kuhn, writes, beginning with the Enlightenment, we became less likely to ask, what, who are we, and more likely to ask, who am I? Now, for many, answering this question, who am I, begins with preferences, with taste, choice, or desire. A classic example of this is your Facebook profile page. I know a lot of you don't use Facebook anymore. I don't really either, but you've seen one. You know how they work. Who am I? Well, I'm a collection of my likes, right? The shows that I like, the movies that I like. Who am I? I'm the celebrities that I like, the religion I like, the team that I root for, etc. right? Who I am is sort of the sum total of all of my likes, We could add to this list your preferences for certain brands or consumer products. Just about every advertisement that you hear or that you see plays and caters to this idea. 
that if you are a cool and cultured person, you're going to buy a Mac and not a Dell. If you are cool and fashionable, but in an understated, sort of outdoorsy way, you're going to buy Blundstones. Right? That if you want to be cool and desirable and fill in the blank, you're going to drive this car, you're going to wear this cologne, you're going to drink this beer, fill in the blank. Who am I? What does it mean to be me? Well, I am my likes. I am my desires. You can think of all of the desires that you have. But in our culture, tastes, preferences, likes, dislikes, desires, they play a major role, but not the only role. Your identity is not just what you desire, it's also what you give expression to. You could think, think of it this way. It's not just your preferences, but in some sense, your performances. Not just what you desire, but also what you do. You do you, we say. Now, I know when we sort of use this phrase, like, you do you, we, we, we often mean, do whatever you want, right? But it's an interesting phrase, nonetheless. Because we're not saying, you be you, we're saying, you do you. Your identity is something that you act out. It's something that you perform. It's something that you express. And if your desires uh, and are not sort of expressed, they are repressed. You could take it a step further. There are, there are those who think that if you don't express your desires, if they're, if they're simply not expressed, you don't exist as a person. But even when we discover our true self and create our own identity, we still need some kind of external validation. We need some sort of praise. The identity is only meaningful when there are other people who can witness your identity. To quote Tim Keller, in the end, we can't say to ourselves, I don't care that literally everyone in the world thinks that I'm a monster. I love myself and that's all that matters. He says that would not convince us of our worth unless we're mentally unsound. Right? We need someone from the outside to say that we are of great worth. Alan Noble writes about this tension and how we can find it all over our culture. On the one hand, there's the pull of autonomy. I'm my own. Only I can define myself. It doesn't matter how other people see me, only how I see myself. But on the other hand, right, there's a pull for recognition that is inherently a part of identity. Right? People must acknowledge me for who I am and see me how I desire to be seen. Driven by our preferences, defined in some sense by our performances, ever needing praise. These are the hallmarks of an identity that is rooted in expressive individualism. I'll say it just one more time so it lands. Right? Driven by our preferences, sort of defined in some sense by our performances, ever needing praise. That's sort of what we're all doing if we're not doing like identity a Jesus way. The key question I want to ask tonight, though, is what kind of fruit does that yield? I think in some sense we're all, this is the default setting. Right? This is sort of the default soil that you and I are, are growing in. But what kind of fruit does it yield? I'll say, first of all, I think it yields or bears confusion. Everyone is saying, be true to yourself, but which part? Inside of me are all kinds of desires, many of them conflicting, some of them contradictory. Like, do you want to be a loyal spouse and rear a stable family? Or do you want to have sex with as many partners as possible? Do you want to eat that piece of chocolate cake or do you want to have six-pack abs? 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn said that the line between good and evil cuts through every human heart, meaning we all experience a war within ourselves. So what does it mean to be true to yourself? What part are you talking about? It's not as simple as being true to myself. It's more like having to pick a side. It's confusing. I think it breeds anxiety. If my identity is largely based on my preferences and my performances, how can I be sure that I'm choosing the right thing or doing the right thing? How can I be sure that I'm buying the right thing or liking the right thing? If my identity is informed by my performances, a la you do you, what if I misstep? What happens to me then? What if I do or say something wrong? Who am I when I fail or when I fall? At the 2018 Winter Olympics, Michaela Schiffer, and she was wearing gloves that said, I am dot, dot, dot on the top of her gloves. Before every race, her performance anxiety was so intense that she would throw up. And a sports psychologist would tell her to fill in the blank, I am strong, dot, 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 or I am strong, I am determined, I am sort of fill in the blank, which is great. But what happens when you slip? or you miss a gate, or you don't cross the finish line as she did many times in 2022. What then? I am not good enough? I am a failure? Shame sets in. I think identity that is sort of rooted in our, our, our preferences and performances leads some to pride and others to despair. See, some are enthusiastic about finding and expressing their identity. They apply themselves. They visualize their goals. They commit to perpetual self-improvement through technique. They're meticulous daily planners. They're highly controlled in their diet and exercise. They got a confident gait and a five-year plan. Their tastes are enlightened, and their acting is excellent. But others feel like the race was won before they even stepped to the starting line. They feel that there's no hope in trying, that the, the, the cards were stacked against them. And instead of being driven to pride, they're driven to hopelessness and despair. What's the point? Expressive individualism, it nurtures a lot of navel-gazing. It often diverts our attention away from others and the needs of the world and often encourages us to just look inside. It's narcissistic. When we do look out, we are mostly looking for affirmation from other people. The terrifying thing, writes Alan Noble, is that everyone is on their own private's journey of self-discovery and self-expression. So that at times, modern life feels like billions of people in the same room shouting their own name. All eyes on me, all eyes on me, right? I love the lyrics from Bo Burnham. Different song. He says, do I have your attention, yes or no? I bet I'd guess the answer, but I don't want to know. Am I all in the background? Are you on the phone? I'd ask what you're watching, but I don't want to know. Finally, when your identity requires public recognition and and affirmation, you can never really stop expressing yourself. And this is exhausting. And what happens if someone doesn't see you exactly as you want to be seen or doesn't exactly affirm you as the ways that you want to be affirmed, want to be affirmed? Well, 
you become angry and you cancel and you withdraw and you surround yourself with those who will echo back to you only what you want to hear. But in siloing yourself, you become less yourself and not more. See, these, I think, are some of the bitter fruits that are borne by our culture, particularly as it relates to our identity and identity formation. Friends, there is a better way to be human, which is one way of summarizing the scriptures and one way of summarizing our series this year. Someone rooted and grounded in the good soil of Jesus's word and spirit in church is going to bear a different kind of life with different kinds of fruit. And as we begin to wrap things up tonight, let's tease out what some of those differences might be, particularly as it relates to our identity. By way of summary, expressive individualism, identity is an inward journey. It is driven by preference. You're defined by performance. And you're ever needing praise. But by way of contrast, Christian identity is not something that we choose or chosen. It's not something that we earn. It's freely given. It's not based on our performance. And it's not based on other people's approval of us. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself. But even if I was, that doesn't equip me. It is the Lord who judges me. His point is what we'll sing in a moment. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say that I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you, right? Who God says that I am. Contrary to cultural opinion, I'm not the collection of my likes. I'm not the latest performance. I'm not the sum total of other people's opinion of me. I'm not even what I think of myself, which is good because sometimes I'm my harshest critic. I am who God says I am. It's the Lord who judges me. And what is his judgment or estimation? Well, fortunately, we don't have to guess. His word, right, the scriptures, the Bible, this word that God wants to plant in your heart, it says it all. Starting on page one. On page one of the Bible, we are told that we are his image bearers. All human beings are made in God's image all made to reflect many of God's own qualities and character. And the implication is that no matter who you are or where you are from or what you have done or what you have failed to do, you possess an intrinsic dignity and worth. Now, you did not choose to be an image bearer. You did not earn this right or this privilege. It is your inheritance. It is who you are simply by nature of being you, by nature of being a human being. You are made in God's image. You possess intrinsic dignity and worth. A Christian is someone who realizes they possess this royal dignity, but this doesn't make them arrogant or proud. They're humble too. How or why? Well, God calls us his image bearers, but he also says that we are like sheep. 
all who've gone astray, every one of us turning to his or her own way. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Of all the creatures that God could compare us to, he most often likens us to the most stubborn, foolish, and vulnerable creatures on the planet. This is a humbling thought. Image bearers, yes, we are, but we are sheep too. In the words of one theologian, we are glorious ruins. But fortunately, it's not up to us to have to refurbish ourselves. It is not up to us to earn the favor of a good shepherd. God moves towards us with the same compassion a doctor has for his patient. Moves towards us with the same compassion a shepherd has for lost sheep. Moves towards us with the same compassion New City Fellowship and Hope for Atlantic City moves towards the citizens of that place. His love redeems us and renews us. And ultimately, it is that, that, the love of God, which gives us poise. Not just balance between dignity and humility, but a reality that we can really hang our hat on. A reason why we can hold our head high. We can hold our head high because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes, Most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though someone might be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Not when we were great, not when we were awesome, not when we were kicking ass, when we were sinners. This, Paul says, is the ground of your identity. What it is rooted in. Jesus died for you, a sinner. You are worse than you think you are, and you are more loved than you could imagine. You are God's image bearer. You are a sinner saved. You are dearly beloved. Jesus calls you mine. Now, someone who's taken these truths to heart, someone who's sort of rooted and grounded in these truths, they're going to be able to take criticism in stride and give it with grace. They're not anxiously trying to earn people's approval because they already possess an approval of the one whose judgment matters most. They don't hog the spotlight, all eyes on me, but they can generously spotlight and celebrate other people's gifts and achievements. They don't think less of themselves, they just think about themselves less. Have you ever met someone like this? Is this what people experience when they encounter you? Listen close. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, this is the kind of person. This is the kind of life. This is the the fruit that God is growing in you. This is who you are going to become. You don't get this fruit by trying real hard or by writing I am dot, dot, dot on your gloves. You get this life and you bear this fruit When you give your life to the one who says, I am, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when you let his words penetrate your heart, and you root yourself in him, and you join yourself to his church, that good soil will lead to this good fruit. Fruit that not only testifies that the life of Jesus is within you, but it's a life that's for the sake of the world.